Welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. And I'm Luke Savage. Hi, guys. I think one of the big tragedies of the Trump administration is that we've lost Steve Bannon as a filmmaker. You know, we've all heard so much about him. I mean, in our careers, we're all supposed to progress to the next level. But this, I think, is where he was at his best. Don't you agree? <laughs> he, Yeah, he was like the conservative Michael Moore. A few weeks ago, we saw, you know, his classic film, Sarah Palin, the... What the hell Sarah Palin, the undefeated. I'm, yeah, I, I almost said the undesirable. It's well, you. But I. Do, it, it's offensive that you would forget the name, given that that film really defined a generation. Yeah, you know, Steve Bannon with his company, Citizens United, uh, <laughs> changed the world. I mean, what, what do you What do you say about him? Uh, we thought that we would jump back into the Steve Bannon filmography again this week because mm-hmm. since we recorded that Sarah Palin episode, I feel like Steve Bannon's prominence has mm-hmm. really risen. You know, at the time you predicted that he was going to be kind of the chief ideologue of the Trump administration, right. and I think that turned out to be true. Yeah. It was one of the darkest days in this country. The unthinkable became thinkable. We were facing something that was unique in all of human history. But suddenly it was all interconnected. The entire global financial system meltdown. Nobody is accounting for what they're spending. You got people and families out here in the United States that are struggling. I just paid $600 for the utility bill. Financial Armageddon. $25 trillion, $50 trillion, $500 trillion. Nobody knew. It's a chain of lie after lie after lie. This has fundamentally undermined the financial banking system in the United States. The loser in all of this is the working man and woman, the middle class of this country. The choices over the next few years are among the most profound we will have seen in all of American history. And I got some bad news for you. This wasn't an accident. The entire global financial system would melt down. The economy. You know why? Because we'd go out and pay off bills, pay off tax debts, create jobs, and buy stuff that we need. So the movie we watched this week was called Generation Zero. Mm. It comes from 2010. Mm. What's the thesis of this film? Okay, so it's kind of ostensibly a film about the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the right-wing capitalism a love story or something. (laughs) But the thesis is really, I think, 
a version of a thesis that's really central to conservatism in general and which really has animated the right, uh, especially in the United States, since kind of the 1960s. The thesis, in brief, is basically traditional values prevailed uh, throughout the tough times of the Great Depression and the Second World War, and they led to a period of unique affluence in the 1950s. But the trouble with the 1950s was that it gave birth to this youth culture, which in the 1960s produced a culture of narcissism, of self-indulgence, of licentiousness. So the film kind of begins with, you know, a look back at 1969. In 1969, we're told that it was a year where you had kind of the two events. The moon landing and Woodstock. Right. The moon landing, and this is another example of how the right has sort of claimed JFK Kennedy, as their own yeah. whenever they need him to. We saw it in An American Carol. Right. The moon landing is in the spirit of innovation and working together for a shared ideal and technology and science that was embodied by uh, the Second World War. Woodstock is freeing ourselves from any kind of responsibility and it's it's the triumph of what what's in the film is called variously like the culture of narcissism the pleasure principle things like that mm -hmm. um, and also in this early stretch of the movie Steve Bannon sets up the sort of class politics because he says that all the people at Woodstock were essentially rich kids who yeah. decided to go slumming to and become then, bohemians exactly and then in the 1970s they entered kind of high society and they took this culture of the self and of narcissism and this is not entirely incorrect it's i think it's incorrect in the way that it's deployed in the film but that was taken into a into the 70s and the 80s and the 90s into this culture of conspicuous consumption of kind of rampant individualism uh, and you know there was a decline of community mm -hmm. as a result of it a decline of national purpose and a disrespect for history that's right so we shouldn't overlook some of the things that that it takes to produce this narrative. So one of the things that appears very early when they're talking about the 60s is like a big part of the 60s was the presumption that America is an evil society. So if we attack it, uh, we're doing good. Another thing is that early on we see students with kind of Soviet flags and things like that. So there's the idea that I mean, okay, and this is, I have to say, I mean, I was going to wait to drop this conclusion later, but I mean, it's such a basic flaw with the film and with this whole narrative. I think we should get it away, out of the way right Go away. Go for it. Well, the film's claim, on the one hand, is that the 1960s and what William F. Buckley called the bonfire of enthusiasms that came out of the New Deal, feminism, civil rights, you know, the new left, these kinds of things... It created this culture of narcissism, of, of individualism, of uh, self-fulfillment, of the politicization of people's identities, all these kinds of, for what are in the conservative historiography are the big problems. So the charge on the one hand is that it's just, it's licentious and whatever. And then the other ch our charge is, but it's communism. Yeah. It's too, it's collectivism. It's... So you see this, I think, you almost, you, it's ubiquitous in conservative thought, just this basic contradiction. I wrote a blog post about this once. Like, on the one hand, it's this charge that it's too, it's too licentious and it's too, like, liberal and laissez-faire and it just lets people do whatever they want and it coddles them through its licentiousness. On the other hand, it's like the government's trying to take everything over and control our minds and, um, and I just think there's a, 
an absurd contradiction there. The, the movie kind of skirts around the idea of that the boomer generation had no respect for traditional moral values. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that how Bannon kind of skirts around that idea. Mm. He doesn't exactly say what traditional moral values are. I think we're meant to assume that it's the family and it's kind of the heterosexual patriarchy, but he doesn't say that because he knows people don't like to hear There's that. There's a very revealing line that's kind of throwaway when they're talking about the 1980s and there's a, an absurd stock footage of a guy kind of shaving in front of a mirror and he's wearing a suit and it's talking about you know culture of self-indulgence blah blah blah, all the buzzwords and then there's something about like metrosexuality that's just yeah. dropped in so i think that it's safe to say that um a lot of just the very familiar idioms of traditional conservatism are just lingering it's almost kind of assumed that mm. we sort of know what they are and i think that's because the people who who would make a film like this to to them those ideas are just kind of natural mm. and organic and so they feel like they don't need to be exactly stated like you know it's just mm. traditional masculinity and kind of sexual mores and and all the rest of it the movie has a lot of nostalgia for the greatest generation which i mean i guess is something that unites both the republicans and the democrats it also has some nostalgia for the 50s that i think has been a little unfashionable lately but there's one of the many talking heads in the film who talks about the idea that well yeah people people think of the white picket fence as being like conformity and you know the subjugation of women forget all that for the greatest generation who grew up in the depression and fought a war the white picket fence was a symbol of freedom <laughs> you know and that's what that's what the boomers mm. didn't understand another part of um i mean we should get to kind of where the narrative takes us in a second but another big complaint about the 60s there's a line about how this was the first generation in history, the 60s generation, that felt it had the moral authority to tell older people and the people in charge, like, you're yeah. wrong, here's how here's how we should be living. So I do think a big part of this film is kind of a, you know, and I mean, who, who are the talking heads in this film? They're all sort of these, like, late middle-aged men wearing bow ties. And they're all from... Um, uh, they the, all they all work at, like, the... Uh, I, I wrote some of them down. There's the American Enterprise there's Institute. The, there's the, the Manhattan Mil Institute. There's the Milton Friedman Institute for liquidating the underclass. Uh, <laughs> there is one called the Hoover Institute. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so they're all part of these, like, Koch brother-funded, like... Multiple bow ties. Yeah, lots of bow ties. <laughs> and, um... If we want to psychoanalyze this film, I think that, uh, you know... Let's like, do it. Like, <laughs> there's only one woman. There's only one woman in the whole film who's also at one of these kind of uh, institutes. But the first part of the film is like the id. You know, it's where all the sexual pathology and stuff is is buried. All the carnal lusts for, like, domination and mm. things like that. It's like, you really unpack it. It's like the children defied us mm. and the women defied us and the blacks defied us. And by the way, these are all guys who are, are of the age to have been at Woodstock at the time. Yeah. They're the guy, they're the campus conservatives. They're the, they're who the ones who get laid during yeah. the summer of 69. <laughs> yeah. They're the ones who, uh, they're the ones who were like, while people were listening to like Jimi Hendrix play the Star Spangled Banner while tripping on, on their third tab of acid, were like, you know, sitting in a room reading like a Barry Goldwater speech, <laughs> wearing a bow tie at age 21. America had become so wealthy through its free enterprise system that young people had huge disposable incomes for the first time. All of a sudden, they became the center of the universe. And you had a reversal of, of what for centuries was a traditional uh, structure of authority, which is that older people knew more than younger people, and they were revered for their wisdom. One of the awful things that happened in the 1960s was the sense, that phrase, you can't trust anybody over 30. 
what it meant is you can't trust any civilization beyond our present time horizon. And there was a kind of schizophrenia going on in the country. One side was operating on what I'd call tragic premises, that there were certain limitations to the human experience. We had certain appetites we didn't want to indulge in. We worry about our public name. We worry about our daughter and our son living up to the reputation of our parents, our grandparents. We go to the cemetery. All of these were very pedestrian protocols. And they're easy to caricature, but slowly over time, they create the stuff of civilization. And there was this ongoing therapeutic movement, of, mostly among young people, that with enough education, with enough good intentions, with enough money, with enough egalitarianism, that the world as we knew it had no limitations, that we could have internal peace, we could have internal beauty, we could have eternal niceness everywhere. Uh, before we go further, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, Steve Bannon as a filmmaker, as a thinker, as an aesthetician. <laughs> Uh, having now seen two of his films, uh, I really feel like I'm getting to know him better. I think this is a better film than Sarah Palin, The Undefeated, mm-hmm. for whatever that's worth. It lays out a more coherent argument. As a filmmaker like Adam Curtis, to whose films this one resembles somewhat, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned during, while we were watching it's the, like a It's like a conservative hyper-normalization, <laughs> if you guys have seen that movie. But like him and like Michael Moore, to another extent, he wants to beat you into submission in a way. He wants to throw so many ideas at you and so much stock footage at you mm-hmm. that you kind of become overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Uh, he wants it to seem like kind of an amazing rhetorical and intellectual feat. Mm-hmm. I'm tickled by the kind of aesthetics of his movies because he uses so much stock footage. Mm. I think he's like Goebbels where he's somebody who (laughs) as a propagandist really studied the enemy and has great respect for the enemy. So Mm -hmm. from Michael Moore, he's picked up that ironic deployment of dated looking stock footage. Just like dumb graphs with lines going up. Or, you know, like Michael Moore, he'll use a lot of footage of like, you know, silent movies or old newsreels, old cartoons. Yeah. But so let's talk about where the film takes us next, because the id of the film that I've just outlined Mm. is really just the beginning. Mm. And really, the first kind of 25 or 30 minutes does a lot of kind of clearing of the ground. Well, then he lays out this theory that history can be divided into eras that are marked by turnings. Mm -hmm. Every era ends with a massive conflict like the Second World War, where Civil all, War, where all yeah. of society agrees this is so bad we can never let this happen again. So then there's a period of stability. We've built up infrastructure. Uh, everything's great. But somewhere along the lines, the spirit dies. Mm-hmm. So then you have the awakening. That's when the next generation comes of age, starts questioning previous values. You get your drug use, your teen yeah. pregnancy. Right. Then there's the unraveling. That's where the political, social, and financial consequences of you know, this coming of age happens. And he says that throughout history, there's an evidence of kind of continual boom bust cycles. And then finally, there's the crisis. That's right. when there's the big inciting event to take everything apart. I don't know. I think it's interesting that Bannon is clearly has such a hard on for a war with China. <laughs> I think he actually wants yes. some major conflict to kill everybody so that we can make it on to the next era. So having complained that this culture of narcissism, these Gen Xers and these boomers you know, by the 1980s, they're just these coddled rich people or whatever. Then claims that, um, I took the I took down the quote, by, by the 1990s, the left had taken over the institutions of power enough to threaten capitalism. Mm-hmm. So bear in mind that this is a declaration being made about, like, the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. 
like the Clinton administration is actually just the natural continuation of it's where communism of the 60s ends up. Is and what and this, this is, is also the stretch of the film where he argues that the GOP and the Democrats essentially became the they same. They converged. They became they the became same a big party business at the time. Party. Yeah. And what's really funny about that is one of the talking heads in this film is Newt Gingrich, yeah. who has the nerve to say that... Uh, yeah, the people are rising up against the establishment. Yeah, he has the nerve to say yeah. that the 2008 <laughs> crisis is when the elites woke up. Yeah. When, you know, the whole argument of the film is that the, you know, the trade deals that he helped Yeah, negotiate. the bipartisan, like, detente of the 1990s that he was one half of <laughs> is, like, the problem. We've lived through a period of bad decision-making by leaders of American finance and business on a scale never before seen in any business culture ever. A 20-year cycle of lying to ourselves about reality, of kidding ourselves about bureaucrats being able to control a free market. I was really struck by this idea that the 1990s were like just a continuation of the 60s because it's one I've encountered before and I had on the table um, when we were watching the movie uh, a book called The Abolition of Britain which is by uh, Christopher Hitchens' brother, Peter, his, his, da Daily his conservative Mail, brother. conservative brother, his Daily Mail columnist brother and it's a, it's a fascinating book because it's kind of a British version of this movie and just written with an eloquence that obviously someone like Steve Bannon doesn't possess and it has a similar narrative of cultural decline and it was kind of written in the late 1990s and re or early 2000s, perhaps, and republished uh, 10 years later. And it's kind of meant to be a critique of Tony Blair and New Labour. And what's really funny about it is that, you know, it has the same basic fallacy of this film. On the one hand, he charges that the Blair culture, it's this, it, like, he quotes Tony Blair doing what's obviously just a hack political talking point where, he, where Blair was like, I'm a child of the Beatles and rock and roll and stuff like that. And Hitchens takes this and he charges kind of new labor culture and the, the culture that new labor is fostering and has come out of with being something that is fundamentally anti-British, that is licentious, that's about a sexual culture that's leading to drugs and, you know, teen pregnancy and all the rest of it, just like this film does. But then the other half of his argument is that new labor actually came out of Euro-communism. If you look at the... Guardian columnists that like Tony Blair, they used to be in the pages of Marxism today, which is actually true in many cases. But he doesn't register that as a shift of like, he thinks that, because I mean, I just look at what the Guardian columnists and the people who like Tony Blair, a lot of them who are like ex-leftists, and it's just like they became less radical. They became mm. crappy. Mm. They, they're cop-outs. But he looks at it and he says, no, this is actually just the natural, this just is communism. Mm. And this film is really doing the same thing. And... I cannot stress enough how strange it is to me and how strange it should be to everybody. The idea of a political universe, a political cosmology where Bill Clinton and Tony Blair are synonymous with communism, <laughs> where the narrative is that in the 60s, you had this beginning of these kind of like enthusiasms that led to licentiousness. I mean, this film keeps talking about Saul Alinsky. Um, and then, and then, and then, by the 1990s, they'd they'd taken control, and they'd yeah. Like, you well, because the idea is the greatest generation who lived through a depression and know how to spend money 
all retired in the 90s. So then they were replaced by their children who knew nothing of those values and only knew to spend. And they only knew that conspicuous consumption was the measure of one's value. Mm-hmm. And that's what got us in this mess. So, th- so then the film basically spends a, a painstakingly long time. We Trapped be- in the weeds, really. Yeah, so we have we have the id and kind of the um, carnal part of the, the... We have the conservative libido is the most interesting part of the film with all this you know, uh, the 60s, you know, made parents defy their children and all the rest of it. But then we get to where these bowtie, you know, conservatives really, uh, where they really feel comfortable, which is talking about wonky, kind of impenetrable financial stuff. But within Uh, this, we get, you know, the great idea, the reason that the housing collapse happened, which is because of political correctness it's because this is an incredible moment in the film it's because you know because of white guilt yeah that encouraged these communist financial institutions to uh the government told banks that it had to give poor people and black people like mortgages and things like that the idea that everybody has the right to a house yeah that's what brought down the financial system When really, what guys like you and I know is that <laughs> poverty is a moral failing, and that if these people were good and deserved a house, they would buy it. <laughs> they would be able to earn the money. Yeah, I mean, so this is part of a talking point I've heard before, where it's kind of like civil rights actually hurt black people. Yeah. Because they led they need to tough a, love. Yeah, they led to this culture of being coddled, or it's just a variation of the same, you know, conservative argument you hear all the time, where it's like welfare actually makes people dependent and not self-sufficient and all this kind of stuff um again you know there seems to be a fallacy to me just in this argument which is that you know on the one hand their complaint is that the united states lost common purpose and it lost kind of communal solidarity and it encouraged this culture of the self and on the other hand they're lamenting they uh they're like oh and um people actually aren't individualistic like they and they're they're dependent and they they're complaining about basic welfare institutions, institutions of social security, which I think pretty undeniably foster a certain amount of social cohesion, which on paper they should approve of. But then they're actually complaining that, no, these things just make people like entitled, you know, entitled and, and whatever. And to me, that's really funny. But I know. So is that that's pretty much. Well, the movie comes to the conclusion that. Obama's the exact wrong president for the historical moment because all he wants to do is spend money. And Mm -hmm. really, if the financial collapse told us anything, it's, you know, we've been printing too much money. Mm -hmm. I mean, God, we see so many shots of just money. Money piling up or like some guy just throwing money. Uh, So basically it comes down to we got to stop spending money. We got to stop over-regulating the economy. Mm -hmm. We need to stop paying for health care, for God's sake. And we need to re-embrace an ethic of personal responsibility, Mm -hmm. uh, which is what our our grand grandfathers understood so the, the film ends on a very interesting i mean the tone of this film all the way along and i mean th- th- this is really the key to understanding it is it's one that is especially when it finishes all the crescendos at the end are just traditional conservative notes about we just have to rediscover you know the ethic that made our country great and we have to you know patriotism and virtue and all these kind of things just all the boilerplate mm like crap that like everybody's weird uncle believes in or whatever uh it's like that but then the film has a tone which does not i mean despite the fact that all the talking heads are just these like staid old guys uh wearing bow ties the film really is quite populist in its tone i mean this is a film that is explicitly taking aim at political and economic elites and that if you pluck some of the lines from it what it's saying about the financial system and it's 
incestuous relationship with American political elites is not it's not incorrect. When he was talking about uh, you know the culture of narcissism and the culture of the self, yeah, I mean he's mm. not wrong. Yeah, um, exactly. No, not 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 exactly. I mean, I think a big I think a, a basic problem with with that part of the thesis is that it was the right much more than the left in the 1980s that really consecrated that very thing. It was the Reagan kind of Thatcher thing, which, mm. which said there's no such thing as society. You know, uh, everybody just needs to be a citizen shareholder. And like collectivism is something to be suspicious. Yeah. Of. And the government is just a, is just a shareholder owned corporation. And all it exists to do is make people like democracy is just, is just people expressing themselves economically. Mm. They're only individuals and, and families. There's no community beyond that. And it was that culture more than any other, I think, that really championed kind of mass consumption. It championed the idea that, you know, balance sheets and things like that was how you measured economic success um, and that there really were no other criteria for thinking about like the health or cohesion of a society. And and to me, like figures like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, what's wrong with them certainly wasn't they were these ex-60s radicals who like re-radicalized things. What's wrong with them is that they embraced that very 1980s idea and they took it even further. They took it further to the right than Reagan and Thatcher did. I don't know. So, I mean, Steve Bannon, I, I mean, I mean, I think the purpose of this podcast and this discussion is not to say, you know, here's the narrative of the film and it's wrong. I think it's much more interesting to think about because it's obviously wrong. And mm. conservatism has never been about ideas. It's it's about kind of, it's about feelings and reactions and, and you know, and the, pre the preservation of inequality by other means. But when it's at its most effective, it succeeds in doing that through kind of a sense of um, faux rebellion. And uh, one of the people who's helped me best kind of understand this is the American writer Corey Robin, who has a wonderful book called The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Sarah Palin. And I think better than anybody else, he's really laid out what this film is doing and the tradition, i.e. conservatism, that this kind of argument is part of. And he's able to explain why it is so consistently effective, because it takes people's kind of earnest desire for rebellion and it channels that into a new old regime that kind of preserves all of the kind of old inequalities whether they're you know after the french revolution the old inequalities of kind of pre-revolutionary france or you know in the 1980s um it kind of appropriates the language of rebellion in the 60s but it just deploys it in the surface mm -hmm. uh, service of capitalism so here's what cory robin says while the conservative theorist claims for his tradition the mantle of prudence and moderation, there is a not-so-subterranean strain of imprudence and immoderation running through that tradition, a strain that, however counterintuitively it seems, connects Sarah Palin to Edmund Burke. A consideration of this deeper strain of conservatism gives us a clearer sense of what conservatism is all about. While conservatism is an ideology of a reaction, originally against the French Revolution, more recently against the liberation movements of the 60s and 70s, that reaction has not been well understood. Far from yielding a knee-jerk defense of an unchanging old regime or a thoughtful traditionalism, the reactionary imperative presses conservatism in two rather different directions. First, to a critique and reconfiguration of the old regime, and second, to an absorption of the ideas and tactics of the very revolution or reform it opposes. 
What conservatism seeks to accomplish through that reconfiguration of the old and absorption of the new is to make privilege popular, to transform a tottering old regime into a dynamic, ideologically coherent movement of the masses, a new old regime, one could say, which brings the energy and dynamism of the street to the antique inequalities of a dilapidated estate. So I think particularly that last line really is a good summation of what the final part of this film is doing and the the current of conservatism that it's really channeling because in the face of the event the film is centered on the financial crisis you had a democratic president elected who really had a mandate to do whatever he wanted to wall street i mean there was such popular antipathy towards wall street into the financial system so much anger at the, these bailouts I mean, there were Wall Street financiers writing like, like we've never been in such a position of weakness. They can do whatever they want. And what Obama promptly did was open the door of the U.S. Treasury to figures from like Citibank and from the financial industry, figures like Lawrence Summers and Timothy Geithner. Um, and, the you know, the kind of regulatory stuff that was passed was like very mild. It didn't harness the spirit of rage at all. And the Republican Party really saw an opportunity in this. Bannon here is kind of co-opting the rhetoric that ought to have been used by the Democratic Party. That's right. And so the Republican Party saw an opportunity here. And uh, I've got a piece written by uh, none other than Paul Ryan in 2009. And bear in mind, in 2009, the Republicans are at kind of their nadir in terms of representation in, in Congress. They, you know, Obama had... 60 votes in the Senate or 59 votes in the Senate or something. And the Republicans were very much the minority party. So along comes Paul Ryan and he writes this op-ed that's called Down With Big Business. It's published in Forbes. And the whole thesis of it is really the same as the thesis in this movie, that the problem isn't, you know, capitalism. It's this incestuous relationship between big capitalism and the government. And so, you know, it's amazing to read Paul Ryan, who is such a slavish servant of corporate America, mm -hmm. co-opting this kind of populist rhetoric, attacking Goldman Sachs, which, by the way, Steve Bannon comes out of Goldman Sachs. That's literally where <laughs> he comes from. Attacking J.P. Morgan Chase, AIG, Bank of America, all this stuff, and saying, you know, that really the problem is this, is this crony capitalism. Mm -hmm. And what happens in 2010, the Republicans take back the House, they take back the Senate, and the losses for the Democrats under Obama continued ever since leading up to 2016 and Donald Trump winning a presidential election and the Republicans controlling every part of the U.S. government on the back of a campaign that very much leveraged this kind of rhetoric, which complained about you know, the outsourcing of jobs with, you know, uh, where Trump just s spent a year attacking political elites and all the rest of it. I think that that is the key to understanding this film, but also what makes this kinds of this kind of conservatism effective. Let's be clear about this. The political class, right and left, Republican and Democrat, saw this crisis coming. There were warnings from the Bush administration, warnings from the regulators as early as 2003. And the old bulls, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, doesn't matter who was in control. They were unanimous on one thing. Nothing can change. And nothing did change. I think what I like best about Steve Bannon is he's, he's kind of the deep thinker of the Trump administration. I mean, <laughs> we're, all, we're always hearing about the books that he's reading. Okay, but I, uh, okay, I have... I, 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 but, but I mean, <laughs> there is something about him. I really imagine him as being kind of like um, having the affect of Philip Seymour Hoffman and the master. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have never been to the pyramids. Have you? No. And yet we know that they are there. 
because learned men have told us so. In in his films and in any of like the interviews he's given, he's always talking about, you know, he's always talking about. Well, when you look at the great span of history, or you know, in this movie, he talks. He's about, quoting the film like at the beginning opens with quotes from like like Euripides or something. And like, you know, there's he talks about Greek tragedy in this film. I feel like there have been a bunch of profiles lately of him where where people talk about him. It's like, oh, he's he's so well read. He recommended that I read The Art of War by okay, S- so Sun Tzu. Okay, so to me, this is very funny because <laughs> this is part of like, and this is something that I, I've also experienced. I think to me, this is something I've seen in like, it's true in Canada and maybe in Britain as well, where, I don't know, a lot of people that actually staff the political class have kind of been there so long and they haven't done any original thinking for a long time. So somebody comes along and like, they carry like the prince mm-hmm. or the art of war or something. And all of a sudden they're treated as some like profound, deep thinker. Everyone's intimidated yeah. by Steve Bannon because he's read Sun Tzu's The Art of War, a book which I kept ornamentally on my shelf as a 12 year old. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, or I saw recently there was a, a tweet in the genre from some journalist that was like, you know, oh, terrifying. Like if you read this article closely, you can see that, uh, Sean Spicer keeps a copy of 1984 in his drawer, and then all the replies were just a variation of the joke, like, someone tell him that it's a warning and not a yeah, manual, yeah. and, like, all that kind of Do bullshit. Do you remember there was something uh, during the uh, campaign, there was some rumor that Trump had a book of Hitler's speeches? Do you remember that I don't rumor? Remember I think that. I think Ivanka, Ivana, his his wife, was the one who spread that around. Melania. No, Ivan- Ivanka. Uh, oh, Ivana. Ivana. I, I, the, I'm sorry, the, there's the so many Trumps. The original <laughs> wife. Yeah. Yeah. Not that it matters. No. Um, So closing this film is this kind of great crescendo of American traditionalism, but under, I don't know, these very modernist auspices. There's this idea that, you know, a new generation, the youth of today need to rise up because, you know, the future is being mortgaged. Uh, Edmund Burke's contract between the past, present, and future has been mortgaged on... Mm. You know, the communist idea of large financial firms uh, running up big debt or whatever. Um, And uh, I think that a missing piece of the Bannon, Breitbart, Trump kind of Gingrich political project that that this film doesn't capture is it doesn't have it doesn't have edge. Right. It's not it's not cool because all these people in this film, they look like people's like laconic alcoholic uncles. Uh, They're all wearing bow ties. Uh, They... How can it reclaim edge? There's, is it possible? Okay, so I think that this is where the alt-right comes in. And we haven't oh, talked about course. the alt-right a lot. Of course. But um, I don't know if you saw the, my tweet last week where it was a bunch of, uh, like, it's this new thing that, like, dumb alt-right people say where like they're trying to be, like, conservatism is the new punk. Yeah, yeah, I see um, that. Right, so... You know, I mean, that's... because it's like, sti- you know, sticking it up to the man, right. sticking it up to these oppressive, right. I guess, political correctness mm. in this equation becomes like the white picket fence. That's right. Um, you know, uh, the best Dead Kennedys song, my favorite punk band was uh, Nazi punks. You guys, you guys are all right. Uh, but n- no, yeah, rimshot. Um, so I think that this film, you know, the alt right hadn't really come along in this film. And I mean, I, I think the alt right, there's a lot of really misleading talk about it because from what I can tell, it's just a reinvention of earlier conservative formations. But it does have these kind of new idioms, and a lot of the people who are part of it in Canada, in the States, and elsewhere, like, are younger. Like, Milo Yabadabad 
dick off yeah. list or whatever is is you know what he's well his I, I mean I, I think also what's different is like you can't deny that it's been fostered by the internet yeah uh, mm-hmm. I mean not not only as a breeding ground for mm-hmm. these people but just as like I feel like Twitter also has this kind of outrage culture on it that everybody everybody's so angry about the alt right that they keep talking about it which just perpetuates the alt right as a brand nobody who's not on Twitter knows about Milo Yiannopoulos no. and the whole praxis of the alt right like it, for it to exist there has to be something for it to there has to be something that it can do so as to appear rebellious and I th- I do think one of the big things propelling this is that you know historically we associate conservatism with kind of prudishness and etiquette Uh um and like very just constraining social mores and i think that those things are now much more associated with a kind of liberal cultural milieu because it's now a big part of mainstream discourse to think about which language shouldn't be what is the history Uh of this word that makes it okay or not okay for a certain person Uh to use that kind of thing and you know whatever we think about those you know and we could have like you know, hours and hours uh, discussing those debates. But I do think a big thing propelling the alt-right is that it's able to posture as dissenting against something, even when it's just all in the service of traditional, you know, conservatism. It's in the service of preserving inequality, but it's able to appear like there's something that it's attacking. Like, the problem with it, though, is the fact that, like, the alt-right... I mean, they want to preserve traditional sexual norms. Mm -hmm. And, like, I think one of the things animating the alt-right is the fact that they don't like the fact that women are fucking people who aren't them. Right. There was a really good uh, Sam Chris piece from a few months ago in Vice where he went to a Milo Yiannopoulos gathering. And, I mean, that's I think that's, from what I remember, that's pretty much the thesis, is that who goes to these things? It's just, like, these weird young men Mm -hmm. who are being given basically a framework for their grievances that are often kind of personal and and um and i mean i was gonna say before you know just as this film it's a it's a look into the current right but without the edge that now the alt-right has given it a lot of uh, the alt-right to me just sort of seems reminiscent of before the alt-right we talked about mras and we talked about like the so-called father's rights movement and things <laughs> like that and those are also these kind of patriarchal offensives that I associate with like older men and the alt-right, the the main innovation of it seems to be like they figured out a way to make this stuff kind of appealing to young people, especially young people who are very online in a way that's Uh unhealthy. And uh, I mean, I should talk, but you know, um, (laughs) so that, that seems to kind of be the innovation of it. And we'll have to find a good alt-right movie if anybody has a recommendation for how we could kind of complete the story we is there one the i'm not sure i'm not sure if the movement's there's, old enough no there's to... got there's got to be something i mean what about something like the... um tucker max's i hope i hope you serve beer in hell or whatever that's called what's that you, you remember tucker max the he... vaguely T- tucker max... he a pickup artist yeah he was like the guy who would like hook up with a lot of girls and then write funny blog posts about them uh, i feel like tucker max he's not exactly alt-right because he didn't have there was no politics associated with it, but right. I feel like he was like somebody who made Milo Yiannopoulos possible. Right. And he spoke to the same audience. Uh, anyway, I don't know if he's good for this podcast. Well, I do think it would be really good. This movie we watched was a really insightful look at kind of a big part of what is powering the thinking and the kind of motivations for what's powering the the right as we now know it. Um, the, the ascendant right, unfortunately. But it doesn't have the whole story. I would love to discover a film that really captures the youthful energy that's Mm -hmm. a part of this. And so if anybody has any recommendations for what 
a good uh, alt-right film would be, even if it's kind of unintentionally an alt-right film, be, that'd be fantastic. What you just described, Sean, is that we have, we have two systems in this country. We have socialism for the very poor, and we have socialism for the wealthy. We have capitalism for the middle class. It's and, an interesting and, way. I've never really thought of it that it, way. It, it essentially is. And, and, the, and, the, and the bailouts, the, all the financial bailouts, everything, the, the investment banking part of this meltdown is very important. But, and that's what people really don't really understand. And, and, and it is a bailout of the financial elites, and it's but, really socialism. It's interesting you say this now, but, but, but it's interesting that the incestuous relationship which you go into in the film between the Democratic Party and big business, because the impression I think of a lot of people, if you ask them, they're going to say, no, that's the Republican Party, you know, big business, you know, they're in their pockets, etc. Next episode, I think, though, we're going to do uh, something a little more classical. That's right. Uh, we haven't quite decided what it is yet. For the for the new phase of the podcast, for the post-Michael Moore uh, phase of Michael and Us, we went with Triumph of the Will. And I think we still, even though, you know, in many ways this has kind of become a current affairs-y type podcast, we would like to do some of the classics and, and talk about those. And, I mean, that has the added virtue of occasionally we get to watch a movie that's actually good, which is, uh, you know... I'm willing to suffer for my art, but, you know, sometimes you can take suffering too far. Now watch this drive. My mother's people came by ship and fought at Bunker Hill. My daddy lost a leg in France, I have his medal still. My brother served with Patton, I saw action in Algiers. Oh, we must be doing something right to last 200 years. I pray my sons won't go to war, but if they must, they must. I share our country's motto, and in God I place my trust. We may have had our ups and downs, our times of trials and fears. But we must be doing something right to last 200 years. I've lived through two depressions and seven dust bowl droughts, floods, locusts, and tornadoes. But I don't have any doubts we're all a part of history why old glory ways to show how far we've come along till now how far we've got to go it's been hard work but every time we get into a fix Let's think of what our children face in 2076. It's up to us to pave the way with our blood and sweat and tears. For we must be doing something right to last too hard.